Well, this is one of those mornings that I think you all should wish you were me because, it, I mean, what more fun could a human being have than to stand up and brag about Jesus for a few minutes in public? Um, what, a, what a great day of the feast of Christ our King. And I do have to say, I am just pretty much nuts about Jesus. I just truly think he's amazing. I think he's worthy of all awe and admiration and respect. I think he was fantastic. I've come to the place where I no longer just see him as a source of blood, but he was an outstanding human being. I mean, I think he literally had the best information possible on the most important aspects of all things human. And so giving him that kind of admiration, that kind of esteem and awe, revering him in those ways, it thus then makes me in my heart want to defer to him and to follow him as the one true Lord and King of the world. The one true Lord and King of the world. Well, this king has a kingdom And the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heavens or some phrase using the word kingdom is used over 100 times in the New Testament. And I would bet that the vast majority of us sitting here this morning, if we had to take a really quick pop quiz, could probably not give a really clear, coherent, one-sentence answer of what the kingdom of God is. Now, we all could talk about something that's used once in the New Testament, born again, and we might be able to sort of maneuver around a bit a word that's not found in the New Testament at all, Trinity, but you have something as fundamental as the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heavens or Christ's kingdom or all the variations of this phrase a hundred times throughout the New Testament, and it's this sort of vague concept in our mind. So again, I'm really glad for this moment to be able to talk about Christ who is a king who has a kingdom. And I think the first thing to say about this this morning is that this kingdom is not an abstract theological concept. And the kingdom of God is not something immaterial that sort of sits in our hearts. You know, we might say, well, the kingdom of God is within our hearts. No, actually, the kingdom of God is a very public thing. It's the more real, and in my notes I have capitalized M and R, the more real entering into our reality, into our real life. So this is what I want you to just stop and think with me for a moment. I know Sunday mornings we don't often like to stop and think, but just stop and think with me. When we normally think of reality, we think of something like, you know, wood, this is really real. Or for those of us standing on the stone, you know, the stone under our feet, you know, that's what's really real. And, and typically when we, when we make matter the thing that sits in our mind as reality, we normally think of density. You know, like this is really, what makes this really real is it's sort of density, you know, and it's, uh, it's just kind of firm and it's really real. Well, what if that which is immaterial is more real than the material world that the immaterial person spoke into existence? See, personhood is not dependent on matter. Matter, as we know of it, is dependent on this immaterial person who spoke it into existence. And so when the New Testament talks over and over and over again about this thing called the kingdom of God, it's not talking about an abstraction. It's talking about something that moves close to us, that comes to us. It's active, it's vibrant, and it's invading human life, though it is invisible. But invisible does not mean not real. It just means that it's not seen. And the best way to think about this is that each of you has a kingdom or a queendom. And that is to say, 
Any place where your choice determines what happens, that's just one little way of you knowing that you exist in the image of God. So just think about anything where you have a choice. Like when you walk into a Starbucks and you say, I'll have a pumpkin latte. Your choice then, if the barista does his or her job, your choice is gonna determine what happens. So you didn't get anything else on the menu, you got that particular thing. And, and God, wherever he expresses what he wants to happen, the spaces and places where what God wants done is done is evidence of his kingdom. And what the New Testament teaches us is that Jesus is the herald of this kingdom. He's the expounder of it. He announces it and demonstrates it, and he embodies it in his person. So when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about the rule or the government of God or God's reign, his supreme sovereignty. And what the scriptures teach us is that Christ, our king, is the one who will exercise this rule until all things come into alignment with God and his purposes. Now, what makes Jesus the king one way different than all other human kings is that what this king is doing, what's his focus? And the focus of this rule, the focus of this kingdom reign is redemption. It's deliverance from all the powers of evil and death. And so when we're invited by Jesus to enter into the kingdom of God, to follow him into that kingdom, into the heart and life of God, what we're invited into is our full redemption as human beings and the deliverance from the evil that both resides in us and that affects us from the outside. For God's desire is that through Jesus, we would live in God, that we'd base our life on the revelation of the kingdom of God. And I think I need to say that for large points of human history in the church, this kind of concrete reality is what informed and produced both worship and discipleship, this kind of concrete thinking. But today, that kind of concrete thinking about a king and a kingdom and something that God's doing on the earth, even sometimes amongst the people who say that they're spiritual, this gets reduced to a kind of, I don't know, religious romance. I mean, if you, if you think about the songs that have been written in the last 10 or 20 years, so much of them have this feel of sort of a religious romance, and I'm not down on that, but I think we have to understand what happens when we make things sort of a vague spirituality, when things get sort of squishy, and what really is going on is a don't judge me kind of spirituality. Whatever you do, don't judge, don't critique, don't comment on what I'm doing. Now, for, for me, just as for instance, this is really seen in the kind of thought life and heart, and I mean this with, with really genuine respect and huge empathy. I mean, I can't really picture this because I can't picture somebody of this, art, I can't imagine being somebody of this artistic talent, but I can sort of imagine John Lennon sitting maybe on a tour bus or in a flat in London and thinking about how the world's out of control and writing, imagine there's no heaven, no hell below us, only sky above. Imagine all the people living in peace and just living for today. And again, God rest his soul, I'm not down on John Lennon, but that's sort of like saying, imagine I can eat double cheeseburgers, chocolate shakes, and chocolate cake, and not gain an ounce. You can't have what he dreamed for without this king who someday really will express his kingdom and then you will have 
No reason for greed as Lenin dreamed. No reason for people to suppress one another. Imagine there's no countries, he said. We know what's going on there. That's just an artistic way of saying, what if we didn't have nation states? What if we didn't draw arbitrary lines on God's globe and then fight over those lines? Like who put that line there between North and South Korea? And who said young men had to lose their lives over a line that somebody drew somewhere? That's what Lenin's cringing for and hoping for. Imagine someday that there's no countries, nothing to live or die for, no places to send young men to get blown up and young women to die on the battlefield. What if there was a world like that? I get it. I, I, I mean, I hear that song and go, John, I get it. But I would then also say, John, with all due respect, what you dream for requires the really concrete, bright light on someone who died on a cross to make that happen. It can't happen, John, without, without you acknowledging a really precise particularity, a really concrete truth. If that's gonna come to pass, it has to come to pass in a certain way and through a certain being who would just say, Someday, and this is the justice that you read about in the Psalm and in Ezekiel and, and in Ephesians today and in the judgment of God with the sheep and goats. What you're, what's really happening there is, John, if that's gonna happen, the goats are gonna have to quit kicking and butting and eating stuff that's not good for them. We can't have this sort of squishy, don't judge me and have the kind of world you're hoping for. For this to actually happen, God is gonna have to actually um, in this immaterial way, express who he is and his kingdom. And our scriptures this morning are telling us that this is just gonna happen. So again, I'm, I'm only doing this to make a contrast. I'm not, actually not making a comment on anybody or anything here, but if you just kind of contrast the kind of religious, romance, squishy, don't judge me spirituality that exists both in the church and that exists in our pop music, I want you to contrast this now with a little paragraph that I wanna read for you from a, uh, the, Adam Clark lived in the late 1700s, early 1800s. He was kind of a noted Christian, uh, we'd think of him today as sort of a noted Christian speaker, author type, theologian. And listen to the concreteness of how he thought and talked about God. God is the eternal, independent, and self-existent being. A being whose purposes and actions spring from himself without foreign motive, or influence. God is absolute in dominion, the most pure, the most simple, the most spiritual of all essences, infinitely perfect and eternally self-sufficient, needing nothing that he has made, illimitable in his immensity, inconceivable in his mode of existence, and indescribable in his essence known fully only by himself because an infinite mind can only be fully comprehended by itself. In a word, our God is a being who from his infinite wisdom cannot err or be deceived, and from his infinite goodness can do nothing but what is eternally just and right and kind. That is the concrete reality that imagine requires. And without that concrete reality, without this shepherd in Ezekiel who's searching for a sheep so that he can look after them and rescue them and bring them out from the nations, bring them out from what I know seems really important today 
you know, fighting over oil or someday human beings will be fighting over water. I know that all those things seem really important, but there's gonna come a day when the shepherd will really lift all of humanity up from out of those things. And this king who has a kingdom really will express his kingdom in all of the cosmos. And that this will be experienced by people as justice, that the bad guys will stop doing their bad things. And the women who have been abused, the children who have been marginalized, the young men who have been sent off to war, all that will stop and they will experience it as justice. That God is finally getting his way. And that when God gets his way, unlike every other human king, this is not only concrete, but it's beautiful. And this is why Paul says to the Ephesians, I pray that you could get a revelation of this king, his nature, if you could just know his nature and his role, what he's up to, I pray that you would know this. That's Paul's big prayer in Ephesians. I pray that you would know Christ. And the reason is nothing has more transformative power than personal knowledge of Jesus. It's a personal knowing of him that God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand above heavenly realms, far above all ruler and authority, power and dominion, above every name that can be evoked. See, this, well, the reason Paul wants us to know this is that because the power that raised Jesus from the dead is immaterial. It's not like this. But it was determinative of matter. It moved a stone, it raised a body, it lifted off the, the tissues on his face, it unwrapped his body. That which is immaterial, that which is unseen power, determined what was happening in the real world. And Paul says, I want you to know that. Why? So that when you die, you could pass a theological pop quiz? No, because most of humanity, for most of human history, has lived under fatalism. You know what fatalism is? Fatalism is the notion that something's gonna happen whether you like it or not and you just need to submit to it. And that is the way even most of humanity lives today in, under this sort of like cosmic universal caste system where if you're poor, you're not likely to get out of it. If you're in a bad marriage somewhere in the Mideast and somebody's beating you, you're not likely to get out of it. If you're being humanly trafficked, you're not likely to get out of it. And Paul's saying, I want you to know that there's something more going on, that you don't live in fate, that this is about a personal God dealing with you, a person. This is about a shepherd looking for sheep. This is about a king who wants to be known. And so Paul says, I pray that you would know him and that knowledge of him would break the sense of fatalism that so many people on the earth live with today. The Jews knew that they were interacting with a personal God, and Paul wants us to know that in Christ we're lifted above fate. This, of course, to anybody who actually has that happen to them. I mean, picture yourself in the back of a van. You've just been kidnapped in Thailand, and somehow you made it here, and you're in a van crammed with a bunch of other 13-year-old girls heading up the 405 from LAX. And the cops pull that van over. And it's over. I mean, don't you think those girls would just want to crawl out and grab those cops' knees and worship them? Thank you. And this is what the psalmist is getting at this morning when he calls us to this sort of energetic, enthusiastic participation in worship that we would see that God created the dry lands and he created the seas, this immaterial, unseen person created that which we see as the material world and that he's king over it, that God rules over creation. 
and that his role as creator is the grounds for his kingship, but it's covenant love that's the grounds of his relationship with us. Covenant just meaning, Abraham, I choose you. Moses, I choose you. Noah, I choose you. Adam and Eve, I choose you. I want you to be my cooperative friends. I want to live in a personal relationship with you. So come, the psalmist says, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our maker, for he is our God and we are his people. We're the flock under his care. So Matthew makes this business of concreteness, or our reading in Matthew this morning, makes this business of of concreteness really real. And the surrounding context in Matthew 25 is this, that Jesus is saying you need to be watching for the king's coming, and you need to be faithfully working when he arrives, and you need to be ready like the five wise bridesmaids, and you need to be using your talents. I mean, those are the paragraphs that come before this. Because, Jesus says, a judgment is coming based on those things. So that when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, that is to say, when you see Jesus finally reigning as the king, he will sit on his glorious throne and he will judge. He will separate human beings the way a shepherd separates sheep from goats when it's time for shearing or when it's time to go to bed, whatever. Jesus is saying, you've all seen shepherds separate the sheep from the goats. That's what it's gonna be like when God finally gets his way. And the Bible tells us that this judgment is based on actions concrete actions in the material world that are based on beliefs that one cannot see. And in that sense, we're acting just like God. When we see people who are hungry and feed them, thirsty and give them to drink, strangers and we make relationship with them, people needing clothes and we clothe them, sick and we pray for their healing and take care of them, then we're practicing what the Bible would think of as just kind of basic Jewish piety that this is what it means to be the people of God. This is what God was up to in Adam and Eve when he rescued the earth in Noah. That's what he was up to. When he called Abraham to make a nation out of him to be his people, that's what he was up to. This is the kind of thing that God is up to. This is Jesus and his kingdom and its ultimate concerns. But I just wanna say this before we're done. I mean, that is a stunningly beautiful picture and it's what makes me like Jesus so much. It's what makes me just say, I am a Jesus guy. But... I think you'll see this as soon as I say it, that this squishiness, this sort of religious romanticism is resulting, I don't think that anybody's actually saying this, I I don't know of any particular books, I'm not referencing any particular books, this feels to me more like just the drip, drip, drip of of a human psyche being rooted in human beings today of what I'm gonna call kind of the new universalism that's rooted in kind of a purgatory for all. Here's what I mean by that. The traditional doctrine of purgatory meant to really take serious the notion of sin. It meant to just wonder what the heck does it mean when those of us who are Christians die and we're such louses and everybody knows we're louses. You know, what does this mean? And so the traditional doctrine of purgatory was meant to take really serious sin, but not the sort of universalism and new purgatory that exists today. It says the opposite. Well, no one goes straight to hell and no one goes straight to heaven. You know, we're all just sort of screwed up. Everybody's on a journey of growth and it'll lead to heaven at some point. So there's no unpleasant bits. Just imagine. But all the unpleasant bits are gone. There's no goats. There's no tares. All the unpleasant bits are gone. But why? A few weeks ago, I asked you, why do we privilege birth? and that just means to think maybe too highly of it, I want to ask this morning, 
Think about just what's going on in the popular media today. Why the privileging of death? You're not your body, and it's only your body that's gonna die. Why do we think that something so magical is gonna happen when this material thing dies? It's the immaterial bit of us, what the Bible calls our soul, or sometimes our heart. That's what's gonna live forever, and death does not change that. Death just changes the material. It's the immaterial that Jesus was worried about. It's the part in us where we made in the image of God who have a queendom and a kingdom. It's that part of us where we can express ourselves, where our choices matter in the world. That's where Jesus was trying to get to. And so this whole notion that, well, we're all sort of screwed up, okay, I'll stipulate that. But I cannot stipulate the next thing that says, and therefore when we die, something will happen that'll make this all okay. No, and here's why. When Jesus came announcing the kingdom, he said two things, repent and believe. This king who has a kingdom said that what you do with this revelation, what you do with this white, hot, universal, cosmic, for all time shining on the person and work of Jesus, what you do with that makes all the difference in the world for your today and your immaterial forever. You have to decide. It is not enough to imagine no heaven, no hell, no countries, no wars. We can't get there without deciding to follow the king who's going there. Amen.